I won't name the person, but maybe around April or May of 2023, we're talking with this entrepreneur who was pretty successful in the admission space. And he told us our idea had no probability of being successful and was definitely going to fail. And more than that, was never going to get acquired. And I think, you know, a lot of people can take a moment like that and be demoralized. But for us, it's like, you know what? We're going to prove you wrong. We printed out these flyers. They were a little bit deceptive. There were these QR codes. They would say <laughs> something along the lines of free food. And he would scan it. And he would scan it, it would redirect you to our website. And it'd be like, hey, we didn't really lie about the free food. If you create an Admit Yogi profile, you can get money. It'll pay for your Chipotle bowl. Um, and we talked about, you know, how there were some students, so I kid you not, were making over $1,000 on our platform in an application cycle, which is a lot of money. I wanted to be like the next Zuckerberg or whatever, but I mean, hell, I know I'm going to be the next Hoffman. So that I can promise on. Hey, and welcome to the Dorm Room Disruptors podcast, where we chat with young entrepreneurs and share the untold stories of innovation that started between class and study break. I'm your host, Murad Akiyuz, and joined by my lovely co-host, Will Rush. Let's get into the stars of the show for today, Ananth, Atman, and Soham, the co-founders of Atman Yogi. What you're about to witness is the conversation diving deep into what started as a young, ambitious college student's idea that would one day help thousands of students get into their favorite colleges, generate six figures in profit, and get acquired by the world's leading college admissions consultancy. Admit Yogi is a service for Gen Z to buy access to previous college students' applications to get inspired and learn how to make themselves stand out in the brutal world of college admissions. Join us as we dive deep into how these three college students use their scrappy methods to grow their business. And a side note, if you love podcasts like How I Built This by Guy Raz, our future podcast, and Lenny's podcast, you're at the right place. And if you haven't checked them out, I would recommend you do so. Uh, let's start at the very beginning, guys. What were some of your guys' dreams and aspirations as kids? Did you guys always have an entrepreneurial spirit? For me, like the earliest job I remember having was I wanted to be a roller coaster designer turned tycoon. Because my infallible thinking at the time, mind you, I was seven, was if Walt Disney can do it, so can I. Um, at the time, I don't think I had the vocabulary for entrepreneur, so I didn't really know what that entailed. But looking back, like I, I think I was always interested in entrepreneurship and the opportunity to create and build things that people take value and enjoyment out of kind of shifted my interest towards politics. And I thought that I wanted to do something in politics and eventually run for senator, maybe even the presidency. Um, but during COVID, I once again realized that entrepreneurship was my true calling. It was something really interesting to me and kind of juxtaposing the political dysfunction of Congress with the fast acting a lot of, of a lot of these companies that had to change their supply chain on a whim think to me that really impressed me and made me realize that uh, going into business and creating something was the most special. Yeah. So, um, and just for some context, if any of you don't know, or any of the listeners, um, me, Anant and Soham um, are actually very closely tied because me and Anant were best friends since kindergarten and me and Soham are first cousins. So my dad's sister is his mom. Um, and so I have seen that whole journey with Anant and for Soham, he has been coding since he was little, and just to apply it to entrepreneurship was just that extra natural step for him once he came to Stanford. Um, and Soham and I actually um, came to Stanford pre-med, um, and we were enrolled in all those classes, chemistry, um, like philosophies of pain and stuff like that. And throughout our you know, childhood and everything, it was always medicine that was fascinating to us. And it still is. I'm very interested in you know, the ideas that come of medicine. 
But I think it's when it came around time that we got into Stanford that, you know, I'm also doing a lot of reflection on my career and the things I want to do in life. I realized that the aspects that I really was excited by in medicine were actually the more entrepreneurial parts in me. It was the opportunity to find a creative solution to a patient's disease or uh, to sort of um, find a scrappy way of, of leading a movement against something. Um, and so I was always fascinated by public health. Um, and I would, you know, create organizations and I had websites and, um, and it's still stuff that excites me, but I'm a yogi was definitely the jumping off point for me to say, okay, you know, maybe that entrepreneurial spirit isn't going to be expressed through medicine, maybe, but through projects. Um, and so Stanford was just the, the place where that was born. And that's, that's sort of how it was for Selim as well. When you think about you guys pre-college and I love the um the roller coaster tycoon you know in you um love that video game by the way I don't know if that was threaded in any of the experience but did you guys do anything like you know side hustle type things in high school or other experiences that were I think to to some degree I was always scheming much to the chagrin of my parents um but you know like like I said I I always enjoyed um selling things. So when I did debate in high school and in middle school, there's only one place where you could really buy food. And so these custodians of food had a monopoly over what you got to eat. And over times, it was grossly overpriced pizza from Domino's or Pizza Hut or wherever it was that they were charging money. And so I realized maybe there's an opportunity here because since there was only one place that was selling food and the lines were really, 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 really long, what I would sometimes do is, you know, I would pay someone $5 and ask, hey, can you buy me some pizza? And they just give me the pizza. They're already at the front of the line. It didn't add any disruption to their daily routine. And they would sell that pizza to someone, let's say, at the back of the line for maybe a dollar extra. Be like, hey, if you want, you don't have to wait in this 15, 20-minute long line. Just buy some pizza now. You know, eventually, some of the parents who were kind of running these tables caught on. And so I had to stop it. But that was, I like, I think it was just things like that, these like little grifts here and there that kind of initially interested me. And then more seriously, during the pandemic, I worked on my first company in the political technology space. So I was really interested in politics and how different political campaigns were organized and ran. And I noticed that national political campaigns and even state level campaigns are really well run. They make a lot of data driven decisions and they're keeping meticulous track of what voters they've contacted and what those voters interests are. But no such software really existed at the local level. And so I wanted to build something around that. So I worked with a few people, my brother and actually my former speech coach and my, my speech captain, actually, uh, to, to build a company that basically worked with local political campaigns and helped build software that allowed them to really easily keep track of voters they had reached out to. So it was almost like a CRM for local political campaigns. Um, so that was like my more serious foray into entrepreneurship. Aman, to add, to add to that, like if you think about you as a high schooler, is there a specific experience that you think prepared you for being an entrepreneur, starting your own business, or doing any of this stuff? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to say, Anand has won national speech tournaments, but he's mostly just known for the snack lines. Those, <laughs> <so>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I went through my own phases throughout high school. I'd say some of the biggest places where I realized what, how, how far scrappiness can bring you, right? Admit Yogi was totally bootstrapped. I'd say that was the most fun 
the places where I realized that um, the value of uh, of bringing resources together with your own hands was actually during like George Floyd protests. And so we're in Minneapolis, Anant and I. Um, and so around this era of George Floyd protests and um, like like COVID-19 is just like, Minneapolis is in fire, right? The, there's a huge lack of resources, of, of medical supplies, of personal uh, health supplies, hygiene. Um, and so me and my brother, we just try to reach out to as many people as possible. And we gather funds. We learn how to reach out to hospitals. And we gather thousands of masks, of PPE supplies that we would eventually, you know, using like whatever, discovering these networks of makeshift uh, supply centers and first responder stations uh, throughout Minneapolis, we would deliver these medical supplies to all these different groups. And that experience of just going to these, these places where it's just people who came together and decided to create a solution to something, that's when I realized the joy of, I think, bringing people and resources together to make something happen. That's when I got interested in, you know, reaching out to huge masses of people at once and trying to really speak to their hearts. Uh, trying to get medical supplies from a hospital was no joke. Um, and so that's that's what I did there. And then I did this, and I'm still doing this huge eye care project called Omnicide International, also with my brother. Uh, we're kind of in it together. And so we, um, you know, we collect eyeglasses, used eyeglasses from people around the world. And we actually replace the lenses to fit those, you know, in rural India or Tanzania and just like solve a huge, massive vision problems for youth under, you know, um, you know, underprivileged youth. And so we are currently in the process of funding an entire vision clinic in Maswad, India, Satara, which is this rural spot that's going to serve half a million people. And the biggest joy of it is the mass media that comes with it for us to be able to go on radio, these local radio stations and figure out how do you connect to these people who live so differently from you. And so I think the marketing design, product design aspect of, of those prior projects is what just like, it, I, am, I immediately found that click into my role in admin yogi um and so just entrepreneurship in general sounds like really impact driven yeah definitely. you're always really impact driven yeah were either of your parents entrepreneurs so my my dad is a doctor and my mom uh, works at my high school my public high school me neither thanks yeah. i love it so both so both come from you know like parents that were not doing this and so really had to kind of teach it to yourself definitely i'll add to that too um both of our parents are immigrants and so they all came here from india you know the, the classic immigrant story didn't have too much money too much family here and so they kind of uh financed their way through the u.s they paid for their own education they you know learned the lay of the land i suppose and i think seeing that is motivating as common as you hear it when you talk to the, the children of immigrants when you know that your parents did so much and gave up so much to give you a better opportunity, you feel guilty if you don't take full advantage of it. And so that's always kind of like our North Star, so to speak, that kind of anchors us in place and make sure we're, we're headed in the right direction. It's the fact that our parents gave up a lot so we could take risks like being entrepreneurs. Are your parents supportive 
in you guys being entrepreneurs? Are they like, oh, as long as you're on your way to being a doctor, or, uh, you know, <laughs> the typical parent speech. My, uh, my dad inspired me to be a doctor, but when it came time for college apps, I hadn't even, we hadn't even had Admit Yogi, right? When it was time for college apps, he was like, you should, you should go to business school. You should be thinking about these business things. And I'm like, what? You want it? I'm like, okay, all right. I, uh, so he, he was always very supportive. Mine too. My parents have always been really supportive of that. And so very, very appreciative. You guys both have such inspiring impact driven and like data driven stories. How you manage the team dynamics and responsibilities as three co-founders. So I guess I'll start by giving some context about what Admit Yogi does. We built this company towards the tail end of our senior year of high school. At that point, Othman Soham, who's not on this podcast right now, and I, we'd all gotten into Stanford University. And we all kind of felt an instant chemistry with each other, not in a romantic sense, but, you know, just in the sense of we enjoyed each other's company. We enjoyed talking to each other about a wide variety of different things. And so we felt obligated, knowing that we were coming to Stanford, this hatchery of entrepreneurship, to work on some type of company. Uh, when you're young and I suppose to, to some degree a little bit naive, I think you focus on problems that you've personally experienced and try to build solutions tailored to that. And as three high school students who had just endured, you know, six months of college applications, the most obvious pain point was college admissions. And we thought that there could be a lot done there. You know, we, we took a step back, we looked at the market, we realized there is a lot, a lot of focus on the ultra wealthy who are willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars for a very pricey college consultant. But everyone else is kind of forced to use very free and limited resources. So we wondered, what if there was a way to build a more mass market product where you're making less revenue per customer, but you just have way more customers to build off of? And so when we started to think about that and reflect on our own experiences, we realized that one opportunity could do with essay sharing. See, Othman Soham and I, when we applied to Stanford, we had asked our older friends to share their successful admissions essays with us. And reading through them was really helpful. We could understand how did they approach very specific essay topics, like write a letter to your future roommate. I have no idea how to do that. You know, the creative writing style that you're supposed to use for college essays is very different than what they teach you in your English class. And so seeing these essays, uh, not for imitation, but for inspiration was very useful. And so we decided at that moment, okay, we are going to build a platform where college students can share these successful college applications after they get into school. And high schoolers, younger versions of ourselves can read through those application materials and pay money to access them. So everyone gets to benefit. So that's just a little bit of context about what Admit Yogi does. Within the team dynamics then, um, I think the reason why you know, we were able to create this company was because all of our skill sets very much complemented each other. Um, I've always been interested in entrepreneurship and selling. And so I love to kind of take charge of, of that component of things. Soham, our CTO, is just very technically brilliant. To Othman's point, he's been programming from a very young age. And as you can obviously tell, Othman is someone who deeply concerns himself with the mission and the impact and getting to know people at their most fundamental of levels, which just makes him a great person with both design skills and marketing skills. And so our skill sets very much nicely complemented one another. We had a great chemistry from the get-go. And so we were able to kind of realize our project through as we, we, we built it out. Was there ever in the dynamic of the three of you guys um, a significant disagreement? that you guys had to deal with? I, I don't know about significant necessarily. I guess 
I think for us, a question maybe a lot of people are interested in, and one we had to talk over was why did we sell the business, right? So, mm. you know, we grew Admit Yogi and in around, like by, by the time we publicly launched, it was around August of 2022 and we sold it roughly a year later in August of 2023. At that point, we had done six figures in profit. Um, we were scaling very fast and, you know, like we we enjoyed working on the company. And so I think the natural question becomes, okay, well, why did you sell your business then? Like, why not keep working on it? Um, and so this was an interesting conversation where obviously we didn't disagree. We all came to kind of the consensus that we wanted to sell the, the company. Um, but it does raise, you know, the interesting question, which is why sell? For us, I think it's, it was a mixture of two things. So the first was market fundamentals. And I think this is something I wish I realized sooner. You can have the best possible company, but if you're operating in a relatively limited market, your path to scale isn't huge. And so for us, like, you know, we were building what felt like a very nice product within the admission space of college admissions, but the overall market for college applications is not terribly huge. Um, and beyond that, it's like, even if you can kind of edge out a significant presence, there's a hundred percent year over year churn. There's no continuity of customer relationship, right? Because the people who are applying to school each year are very different. So it's like the class of 2026, the class of 2027, class of 2028. Those are three very different demographics. And so that was part of the story for us. It was just, we recognized we were growing, but like there's kind of like, you know, like this asymptote for how big this market can be. Um, and then the second thing is just a question of opportunity cost. When you're young, when you're at an amazing place like Stanford University, it's like there is just so many amazing opportunities floating around you. And if there's an 1,000 mile per hour train, hurtling past you, but you got five seconds to jump on, you better jump on. And so for us, we, we looked at all the different opportunities. We realized we learned a ton from building Advent Yogi about the education space, about scaling marketplaces, about talking to customers, about selling. Like we were able to create this very systematized process. And basically we, we went through over a year of hard learnings, which honestly felt like two, three years of hard, hard learnings. We felt like we could really apply that in other industries that felt more interesting. We could scale even more quickly. And so I think that was the second thing. It was just a question of opportunity cost. When you're young, time is your most valuable asset. And so we thought that we could be putting our time in, in even more interesting places because Admit Yogi was interesting, but it certainly wasn't the most interesting thing we felt like we could be doing with our time. Man, I love We that. also disagreed on fonts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fonts too. Was, was there any ever a, a point in the business where you thought it might fail? Where you um, experienced trouble? I mean, I know we all as entrepreneurs have, have elements of those moments, but anything, you know, that you'd want to share? I think there, there are two kind of marquee moments and often feel free to chime in on this too. Uh, the first was really early into building it. So around October of 2022, at this point, you know, Admin Yogi had been publicly launched for about two months and we just kind of felt like we were hitting a wall, like, you know, this wasn't as exciting as it had been, right? You know, like that initial flash and luster had kind of worn off. Um, and we, we were just thinking to ourselves, is this really the space we want to be building in? Do we really want to be known as the college admissions guys? These types of questions were kind of circling around our heads. And so I think there was a point where we all collectively felt demoralized. And I wish I could tell you there's an easy way to get out of that rut, but it's just kind of one of those things where you put your head down, you keep consistently working, and you just go at it. And either you will refine that passion because you realize that this is an interesting and important project to be working on, or you never do, in which case you're probably right. Maybe it is worth abandoning, but thankfully for us, you know, we put our heads down, we kept growing. We said, 
know, we built something valuable. People were reaching out to us saying how useful our service was. And for us, that was gratifying enough to keep working on the project. So that was kind of like the first, I think, big moment. And the second, I won't name the person, but maybe around April or May of 2023, we're talking with this entrepreneur who was pretty successful in the admission space. And he told us our idea had no probability of being successful and was definitely going to fail. And more than that, was never going to get acquired. No company would want to buy us because our primary clients were high schoolers, not parents. And high schoolers are a much worse group of customers to go after than parents. He's certainly right that high schoolers' conversion rates, you know, the likelihood that they complete a purchase is lower than, let's say, you know, a 50-year-old mom who has much more wealth to her name. But I think like that moment, but, but I think that kind of ignores the truth that high schoolers still have money. They're still willing to spend. And oftentimes the parents are roped into those decisions as well. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people can take a moment like that and be demoralized. But for us, it's like, you know what? We're going to prove you wrong. So for us, that was kind of energizing. But I think like for, you know, the next 48 hours, it was kind of like this rain cloud over our heads of maybe he's right. Maybe this won't sell. He brought up some good points. A lot of the times you have these people who have, quote unquote, authority, um, who have expertise in a space. Um, but I think the, the thing worth remembering, and this might be useful for an audience like, you know, Jetson's, is that there is a value in being a little bit younger and having some of that naivete and not understanding that things work a certain way, because that allows you to challenge very dogmatic thinking that quite frankly, kind of grows in people's minds over decades. And so where they have experience and maturity, they maybe lack that willingness to kind of break things and move fast. And so for us, it's like, yes, that guy was experienced, but he didn't have that willingness to break things. That's what we, what we had. And we were willing to prove him wrong. We did prove him wrong. And I think when moments like that happen, you can either fold or you can double down. We wanted to double down. Like right now, we are, you know, feeling the celebration, the excitement of the acquisition, but those 48 hours were tough. I mean, we are looking back on everything that we had done and we're, it's regret and it's like, no, it's pivoting every five minutes to, you know, this and that. And, you know, I'm, I'm grinding out the TikTok and I'm like, oh my God, like, let me make a Facebook account. Like, like where we got to like appeal to parents and everything. And two months later, I forgot about that, you know? Um, and it's, and I truly, truly think that the, the biggest lesson that I, I wish I knew when I was younger, and I think any entrepreneur should really get a grasp of is that the story really doesn't look, you know, doesn't make any sense until you're looking back on it. Um, and in the middle of it, you think you're doing everything wrong. This was my first startup, uh, my first company, same with Soham. And so it's easy to think, what was all of this? And so now looking back on it, it, it makes a lot more sense, but everything is worth it. I think, um, you know, you're going to come out just fine. That, that's, that's the best thing I can learn. That is another inspiring story. I'm so glad you guys stuck through because at the end of the day, now you could message, email that person and, and tell them. <laughs> Give them a reminder. Believe me, yeah. we did. We did, believe me. <laughs> Very politely, yeah. <laughs> Make sure they see the press release. <laughs> Love it. I know you guys, do a, you guys did a phenomenal job of reaching the right audience using the correct social media platforms. I would love to learn a little bit more about your strategies that you tried. Uh, I appreciate it. The, the TikTok is just like, it, it is... It's just so gratifying to, to like really get it, be able to talk with the high schoolers that you're helping. You know, I mean, I was there, there were full days where I was just chatting with people in the comments about, you know, their college apps, anxieties and everything. And I think 
um, in the entrepreneurial vein, that is one of the biggest things you can do for your brand um, is having a very, very close connection with your customers and showing, hey, I'm here to genuinely help you. And uh, here's some real advice that I wish I had when I was applying to college. And hopefully, hopefully uh, you take it. Um, and so I think uh, when, when I was seeing, you know, other people marketing and I, personally, I have a TikTok addiction. And I think that those are the people who should be running your TikTok accounts. Um, and so, you know, you see other companies and the, their marketing strategy might be, you know, like, oh, here's this cool story or here's this cool tip. And then the end is just like this elaborate, like, ad, like, and then by the, like, once you reach the end, you're like, oh my God, this was all so constructed. This, you tricked me, you know? Um, and so the, I sincerely think uh, the goal with the TikTok and what we got out of the TikTok was it was a, you know, some, some strong people who like really, really loved the brand, loved the company and everything. But the biggest thing was, yeah, this is mission driven. Like we're doing this because this affected us. And so let me help you in the comments and let me make two videos a day uh, to just give you a hand. Um, and so that was what drove us there for the TikTok. Would it be fair to say basically you, you felt like the TikTok was just a way to give value to your community? I mean, one, one obvious way was the product and to bring the product to the people is to give them value. Um, we started doing like free unlocks and stuff and scholarships. Um, but I think, um, you know, there were some points where the user base was the TikTok. But then it turned into something where it's like, oh my God, this is actually more of a brand tool. And it funnels occasionally, but like this, like people know about Admit Yogi and this is how you build trust. Maybe buy the product or to, you know, look at the people we're referring you to for consulting and things like that. It's just that field of trust. And Anand can elaborate on it. I think you hit it right on the head. He's, I do that uh, sometimes, I'm sorry. When you guys were um, turning on revenue for the first time, can be a huge anxiety provoking moment. Uh, I don't know if that was day one for you guys or if that was, you know, um, further down the line, but what was that like? How'd you guys think about the business model and how to actually charge customers for this and, um, how thoughtful was it? Or was it just kind of trial and error? So for us, and this is, this is kind of my philosophy on most pricing models. If your customer is directly paying, you know, in other words, you're not a, a Facebook or a Google where, you are basically building out a marketplace that connects advertisers with your end users, which are people actually using the product. Um, I think you need to charge as soon as possible. And you are otherwise kind of just closing your eyes to the reality, which is if you don't have a product people are willing to pay money for, you either need to reevaluate your pricing if it's too high, your product, if there's some just type of, of disconnect, or your customer. If there is value in your product, but you're just kind of marketing it to the wrong people. And so we we did charge from day one because we wanted to test as quickly as possible how much value this provided. Um, and I think, honestly, I can say that for a lot of people who are building in college, especially if you're trying to get to, you know, a seven or eight figure company, charge as quickly as possible to figure out if this is something valuable. Um, as far as the actual pricing goes, for us, we just experimented with a lot of different tiers. Right. So, you know, you can buy a smaller package that's more inexpensive or a larger package that's more expensive. And we were able to kind of model out where's most of our revenue coming from? What are the most popular packages to figure out, okay, these types of, th this is how many on average, let's say, profile unlocks a customer wants. 
Um, and then from that, we can kind of create pricing around that and figure out what, you know, how elastic can our pricing be? Um, and versus, you know, how, how resistant are they supposed to price changes our customers? Um, so that, that was definitely the thinking there. Building trust with the users submitting their applications. Was it hard in the beginning to like, oh, post your application on this website. Um, you'll make some money off of it. Um, how was that like trust building like? Yeah, we tried a lot of different strategies, get college students to share their college apps. First, we tried putting it on the TikTok, right? We had a user base there. So maybe, you know, we can get college students off that. It was kind of a smaller return. Then we started doing an ambassador program where we would pay college students to go to, you know, to Yale, to Stanford, to Harvard. They've got the email lists and everything. And, um, and to just email everyone and be like, hey, like, this is a thing please upload your college apps. And that worked pretty well. And then um, we actually, um, we were A-B testing a ton of emails to you know be sent out to other college students using the Stanford population. And so what uh, Soham Ananth and I would do every morning uh, or around lunchtime, that was, we decided that was the prime time, was we would send 100 emails to Stanford students every single day. And there was some point where Soham's email got blocked and like he, he, did, he couldn't sign into anything Stanford for 24 hours just because, you know, he was sending so many emails. Um, and so it eventually hit a point where the open rate on some of these emails was like 40% and not the open rate, but the click rate. So this was the people who were actually clicking the link to admit Yogi. Um, and, it, and so the, the way we did that was just like a tree of different emails and different headers, different first lines, whatever shows up in the notification. How long is it? everything. And so we had months of emails that we could look at and we could be like, this is the best one. This is the best one here now. And so it was a huge optimization problem for us. Um, and so that's when we sort of dove really deep in, or at least me dove really deep into the world of A-B testing. Um, and so, yeah. There's, there's actually a funny story there too. So if you ever search someone's name and they're still affiliated with the university, you might encounter a page specific to that person, right? So you might see, it says something along the lines of Atman Jahagirdar. Um, and then it says something like he's an undergraduate Stanford and it'll include their email. So turns out most colleges have this where if you search for a person, there's some type of page associated with them on the university website that just has their name and their contact information. Their intention is to make it pretty easy for you to find all the students associated with specific names. Um, the problem is you can't really scrape those, right? There's no like centralized uh, repository for all of these email addresses, unless you are a student at that school. So the question is, okay, I know that these pages exist, but there's no central location for them. What is the most efficient way we can collect as many of these emails as possible? And so this was one of the funnier stories. We, we built out like a little like scraping tool that looked at different universities and searched for the 5,000 most common names. So search, for example, John, Marcus, Will, etc. And it would <laughs> collect as many of the different email addresses as, as possible associated with those names. And then we realized this is collecting a lot of very common names in the US, but a big portion of our user base are Chinese and Indian students. What if there's a way where we can also, you know, put in the thousand most common Indian names and Chinese names and, and collect some more names that way? So we ended up doing that. We, we could collect thousands of email addresses per university from that. And so 
it was kind of scrappy things like that we used to, to, to get email addresses. One of the things Othman didn't talk about with A-B testing we, we also did was um, we printed out these flyers. They were a little bit deceptive. There were these QR codes. They would say <laughs> something along the lines of free food, and he would scan it, and he would scan it, it would redirect you to our website, and it would be like, hey, we didn't really lie about the free food. If you create an Admit Yogi profile, you can get money. It'll pay for your Chipotle bowl. Um, we talked about you know how there were some students, so I kid you not, were making over $1,000 on our platform in an application cycle, which is a lot of money. So we placed these flyers literally everywhere around Stanford's campus. We snuck into dorms we weren't supposed to be in. We put them in bathrooms. We put them, you know, on the floors next to doors, just in the most high visibility spots possible. And then each QR code was unique. So we could see which one were the ones being the most scanned. We could figure out what were kind of like the, the hotspots around campus. Um, so it was just kind of these scrappy things like that we used to, to get users. Um, and I think this speaks to Othman's point he made pretty early on into this conversation, which is that bootstrapping is just so much fun. Because I think a lot of the times these companies kind of get flush with cash before ever having the discipline to realize how to spend that cash effectively or trying to be a little bit more creative and ingenious themselves. And I think being kind of raised with that ramen noodle mentality, you know, both when we were younger, you know, having immigrant parents, but also when we're working on this company, I think it's nice to have that mindset because it does mean that when you do raise money, when you're working on you know, the, the billion dollar plus ideas, um, when you spend money, you are spending it very, very intentionally. And I think that is paramount importance to have. We walked into Stern Dining Hall and students were looking at the menus and we had slipped flyers under the, the, the plastic of the menus and they, they were still <laughs> there for a week. So that was, that was just, it's so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> I love the scrappiness, man. It's amazing. I mean, obviously the growth strategies that you guys had um, were incredible. From a product standpoint, one of the, the things that we actually get the most questions on is people wanting to build their product, in my opinion, too early. Um, before they've tested whether there's actual demand for their product before, you know, they know if people actually care about the problem that they're solving, all those things. Was there anything that you guys did in the early, early days before you guys actually, you know, got the, the fully functioning version of your product live? Did you do a manual version of it? Did you just get the message out there and see if people resonated with it? Did you do other things? So I wish this is one of those things where like looking back, like you learn a ton about maybe what you should have done and what you shouldn't. We did some validation more so on the college student side, but on the high schooler side, we figured, okay, all three of us have experienced this pain point, so let's go after it. We didn't really talk to too many high school students to figure out if this was something of immense value. Um, but what I will say we did well was because we had the TikTok, we built out the TikTok before we were building out the product. It allowed us kind of like a distribution channel for whatever product we ended up building. Because the advice was not plugging our product, which is genuinely useful college admissions advice, if you ever decided to pivot, it's like all of a sudden you have an audience of tens of thousands of high school students who are applying to college each year who will look towards you and you can really easily promote the product in front of them. And you've kind of built that rapport. You've built that trust because for the first two months, you literally were selling them nothing. What advice would you guys give to college students who are looking to start their own business? There's only so much I can say in the limited time. I wish I could spread yeah. all years worth of Admit Yogi knowledge. <laughs> um, but I think the, the biggest thing I can say is there's two things I'll say. One is right now you might you know wake up and you're thinking, what problem sets do I have to do by the end of the day? And, um, you know, will this girl like me? 
and am I going to get invited to this party? And those other two will still exist. But the first one, during the period of Admit Yogi, I, I felt like I woke up and was raising a child. I said, I'm, I'm you know, it, 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 I didn't care about the grade. I didn't care about, you know, I mean, yeah, I would get notified by Stripe every morning by how much we made. But other than that, it was, you know, like, um, you know, how do I feed this child? How do I feed this audience? Um, and I, I say, you know, if you have an idea, as long as you feel like it's something you can get safely attached to, then, um, then there is a huge value already in going for it. There is a huge lesson to be learned about parenting um, when you wake up in the morning and you're like, this. It's so it's so much easier to make a plan for your day when you every ounce of your body wants to just um, create this thing. And the second thing I'll say is something I've sort of said over and over, but when, you know, this whole entrepreneurship thing is just an emotional roller coaster and you have to be safely detached from the ups and downs that happen in, in the natural turns of every day. Um, and one day of low revenue, one day of high revenue, it is so easy to think, oh, you know, something's going wrong. I'm going wrong. Um, you know, do we drop the company or do we drop out of Stanford? Right. Um, and so, <laughs> Um, and so sincerely, the biggest thing you can do for your mindset is realize that it's that, that the story is only going to make sense looking back on it and that anyone who made their successful startup had no idea what they were doing in the middle. Um, and, uh, it's easy to look at their path and say, okay, I need to do this, this, and that, but, um, you should make your own path. Uh, and so I, I want it to be like the next Zuckerberg or whatever, but I mean, I know I'm going to be the next off one, so that I can promise on. Yeah, I'll, I'll plus one everything he said. I, I love the baby analogy. Um, for me, I think there are three questions you really need to ask, which are, do I have the right people? Do I have the right idea? Do I have the right execution? When you're in college, to find the right people, I think you need to put yourself out there. Go to the spaces where people are working on immensely awesome and creative ideas where they're spitballing past each other. It doesn't have to be spaces where individuals are formally working on a company. Just find places where you can meet impressive individuals who are motivated, ambitious, and hungry and build out relationships with those people. Um, for me, I was grateful, you know, in the sense that getting to know Othman and Soham before, you know, we had all come to Stanford University, but I think in large part it's because, you know, well, Othman and I, we'd been doing that since elementary school, which is when we'd known each other. Like, you know, we knew we were kind of motivated by similar ambition, which is why we were able to be so close. And often knew his cousin Soham had that same kind of motivation. And when I got to meet him, I was like, I can see exactly why he said we would get along. Um, so just try to put a lot of time in finding the right people and just go to, you know, as many of those different opportunities as you can put yourself out there. When you find, you know, even the right first two to three individuals, they will introduce you to their friends. You know, the saying is like attracts like, and before long, you will just kind of have a group of individuals who are very talented across a wide spectrum of abilities. And those are not only great potential co-founders, but great friends, the types of people who, you know, you can create the second coming of the PayPal mafia with. So that's the first part, find the right people. Uh, the second part is, you know, you need to find the right idea. And so I think you have to, to your point, work backwards, start with the problem, then find a solution. Don't find a solution and then wrap a problem around it. Make sure you're actually going after something that is significant and material in a market that is large enough to have, you know, a, 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 you know, good enough business value for you. 
as an entrepreneur. Um, and before you go too deep into building, make sure that you are selling first. Like this is something that people are actually interested in having. And then the third component is just having the right execution. And so think a lot about how you can build a moat around your company. What's stopping some other player from copying you? How are you going to become defensible? You should have a clear idea about this. So many founders are just like, we're going to win because we have better technology. And I always say no. Like, you know, respectfully, you're not going to beat Google, which has thousands of software engineers. Like, you can't win on better tech, at least initially when you're starting out. So you have to win on something else, whether it's some type of contrarian understanding about how a market operates, whether it's a very unique go-to-market strategy, whether it is, you know, um, like you're able to build some type of network effect or have some data mode. Just think very conscientiously about how it is you're going to win. Uh, spend some serious time doing that. You know, don't just like build and say, okay, I'm going to beat Google and Apple and Microsoft because I'm a better programmer than these multi-trillion dollar companies. So that's what I would say. What were you guys' future plans post-acquisition, both personally, professionally? I think um, I want to keep building keep working on companies and then more personally, you know, just kind of explore Stanford and keep meeting amazing people on this campus. There are so many awesome and great people on Stanford university who I know are going to do big things. And so I just want to kind of get the chance to meet them, not even for a professional interest, but more so because I think those are some of the most interesting people you can talk to and the energy they have is infectious and it makes you want to change the world even more. So Mix of those two. Amir, I want to sharpen my skills and find people who share, you know, the missions that I have deep in my heart. Um, and this is just a land of opportunity at Stanford. So fly while we're here. Thank you guys so much for tuning into our third episode of the Dorm Room Disruptors podcast. I really hope this episode was in one way or another entertaining or insightful. And if that's the case, I would love your support if you can give our podcast a rating. And why not share it with a friend or two? See you guys next Monday.